0: on Act News Daily.
1: So I, I talked about earlier how we're we're maxed out on our capacity to slaughter now from Monday through Friday. If you have extra plants, you then can slaughter more cattle on Monday through Friday, and that may help you on your labor pool where you don't have to work on your on your Saturdays.
0: Welcome to a Wednesday edition of the Agnes Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined again by Ashton Carr. And quick reminder, folks, that we are sponsored by DPH Biologicals. To unharness your soil's fertility to maximize yield, visit dphbio.com. And Ashton, I tell you what, it is windy, windy, windy up here. And it certainly is a hump day in central Iowa. I know I mentioned it on the podcast yesterday, but there's a pretty strong low pressure system sweeping through pretty much the heart of the Midwest today up into the Plains area. So my neck of the woods all the way up to the Dakotas are seeing winds that are pretty strong. I don't know how strong they are today, but according to meteorologists, gusts could be anywhere from 70 to 90 miles per hour. And somebody in New Mexico reported that they've seen 100 mile per hour winds today. So certainly. Similar, I would assume, to haboob weather.
2: <laughs> I think that it's really funny, actually, because um, obviously it's pretty windy here in Lubbock, as it always is, but I know that it's pretty windy back in Dallas because the county that I'm from is currently under a wind advisory. I have a friend in Colorado who posted on his Snapchat story that there was a 107 mile per hour winds where he's at in Colorado. So I think just about everywhere is seeing some crazy wind right now. It sounds like. And I think what's more notable is Ashton, you know, the areas, especially
0: north of where I'm located, have seen the second driest of the past 40 years. And so these abnormally warm temperatures have also increased drought stress on, you know, winter wheat crop in Kansas and the Dakotas. And so with this wind that's blowing through there today, you know, when you think about soil and compaction and drought, those things don't really mix well when you get big gusts of wind like this and you have really dry soil that's potentially not compact or not, you know, um, sitting with the soil beneath it. I'm not explaining that very eloquently, but I think you get the the picture. That certainly creates, I guess, haboob-like conditions potentially, right?
2: Yes, it does. I think that that's what really makes haboobs so frequent out here in Lubbock is that it's So dry all the time. We hardly ever get, you know, a good amount of rain or anything. So, and, you know, we're right in the middle of cotton country. So a lot of our soil just turns into nasty dirt floating through the air. So I think that many parts of the country are really experiencing a mini haboob right now. That is true. I don't know that we would classify it as such. But yes,
0: that is basically what we're facing. And the weird thing is like it's warm outside. I mean, it's 60, 65 degrees. So it feels almost like shorts weather aside from this really strong wind.
2: Well, Delaney, apart from you know being blown away out here, I have some other news to talk about today, and this story is coming out of China Delaney because we saw today that China is set to raise import tariffs on most pork products next year after China is reportedly you know trying to ramp up production of their domestic hog herd and it's reduced its needs for imports. These tariffs for most quote favored nations will return to 12% on January 1st from 8% currently. So I am assuming that things are going, you know, maybe well for China as they're trying to ramp back up their domestic production. But I didn't know what to make of this. Of course, Delaney, you know, this week in particular, we talked a lot, I feel like, about how we don't really know if we can trust some of these announcements coming out of China, especially when we're talking about their, you know, swine herd. But they are going to be ramping up those higher tariffs come January 1st. Yeah, I
0: had this piece of news as well, Ashton, and I did want to add a one small piece of color here. You mentioned those favored nations will return to 12 percent come January 1st. And from what I can tell, the United States is classified as a favored nation. That's basically a WTO trade policy term uh, that typically just includes people that are part of the WTO. However, China also gives this favored nation status to China or excuse me, to Russia as well, even though Russia is not part of the WTO. So by all means, we will see that 12 percent increase here come January 1st, which is not very far away, Ashton. But I want to take things over here to a more fun and upbeat piece of news, because I always love reading this year-end and year-out when we get to this time of year where yields are pretty much finalized. Of course, the National Corn Growers Association puts on a yield contest every year, and it's pretty similar the folks who usually win it. This year, it was won again by David Hula with a 602.17 bushel per acre in Charles City, Virginia, which once again... Uh, top to the old record which i believe was also set by him and that previously was 600 bushels per acre so you know you hear these big numbers and you think that's crazy how do they produce it well it's just usually on you know like an acre or two acres they're really concentrated and pouring a lot of nutrients into this one area this one little plot that's not a very big space it's not like their entire farms yield that high but wouldn't that
2: be crazy if they did well, Delaney, I have another kind of crazy story here as we move on down the line, and it's talking about sustainable aviation fuel. We've talked about this kind of fuel here on the podcast before, and if it's really going to work or not, I think is a a big thing and whether or not customers are actually going to buy this kind of fuel and what's it really going to be used for. But one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting that we have now seen is that United Airlines has successfully completed the first flight running on sustainable aviation fuel. And this fuel, you know, is made from products like cooking oil, vegetable oil, and even soybean oil. CEO of United Airlines, Scott. Scott Kirby said that this is an important and historic moment for global aviation. He said that there's no battery technology, even theoretical technology that has enough energy density that they could put enough batteries on the plane to get a plane that big with that many people flying in the air. So what works for other transportation industries won't work for aviation, but this kind of sustainable fuel does work for them. So I thought that it was pretty interesting that we have really seen the full transition here and now have seen a flight be completed with sustainable aviation fuel.
0: That is certainly in- interesting and exciting news, Ashton. Uh, but I have one other final interesting piece of news today today. Iowa farmland values are up a whopping 29%, according to Iowa State University's annual land value survey, which was released just yesterday afternoon. And comes as no surprise. I mean, we've seen land on a steady increase here for a couple of years now. But this is the largest increase since 2011, when that year land values rose 32.5%. So we're not far behind. Uh, The average statewide value of an acre of farmland in 2021 is $9,751 compared to 2020, which was $2,100. So certainly an interesting increase there. Not a great time to buy farmland, as I know I've mentioned on the podcast before. And, you know, what goes up certainly at some point has to come down. But at this point, they're saying they don't see any indication to lower farmland prices in 2022.
2: And Delaney, before I get into this next piece of news, I wanted to remind everyone that we are sponsored by DPH Biologicals. So if our listeners are looking for an alternative to starter fertilizer, DPH Biologicals offers a competitive alternative for broad acre crops without sacrificing yield. Refined across millions of acres, TerraTrove combines microbes, plant extracts, and algae to offer the most complete biofertility solution available. To unharness soil fertility and maximize yield, visit dphbio.com to learn more. I just have one other story to talk about today, and this one was kind of a shocker for me just because of the numbers that I'm going to be talking about here, but I know down here in Texas, we have a big issue with wild hogs. Delaney, I'm not so sure what the story is up where you're from, but it has been reported that there are 6 million wild hogs in the U.S., and there are about 1.1 million ag producers who are experiencing a feral pig takeover of sorts. USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service economists calculated an estimate of annual crop damage at $190 million this year. And of course, since I'm from Texas, I've got to talk about it. But Texas was the highest estimated feral hog population, had the highest annual crop losses, totaling almost $90 million. And I think it poses a big question on how are we going to counteract what's going on with these feral hogs? How can we, you know, make sure that we don't have so much crop damage? And how can we control this population? Because I think it's continuing to be a bigger and bigger issue each year.
0: Yeah, I saw that or similar story, maybe not the exact one you're reading, Ashton, but I always think it's interesting, too. We don't, have that problem up here. I think it's more like a southern problem. But I always think it's interesting too when you know you hear about people going to go on
2: a wild boar hunt. Do they have wild boar hunting seasons in Texas? It's not really a hunting season. I think just because they're wild boar, it's not regulated as you know other game is. I mean we have, you know, bow season for deer and rifle season for deer, and we have duck season and all those kinds of things, but not really a wild boar situation. Okay. Well, I always think that's
0: interesting because, you know, we just hunt very different things up here in the Midwest compared to what you guys hunt down there in the South. So I was just curious if you guys have a a wild boar hunting season, but yeah, I guess that makes sense too. You know, I've seen that they have announcements or they tell the public like, okay, well, you can hunt outside of the normal season when it comes to like deer hunting, for example. So it sounds like it's a similar story when it comes to Boar hunting, wild boar hunting.
2: It is really scary though, Delaney, because we have such a large wild boar population down here. I get really scared driving back to Dallas because it's a lot of country. I don't really go through any major cities. So I'm always scared that I'm going to be going 80 miles per hour down the road and I'm going to hit a boar. because I, you see them dead all the time. I've had plenty of friends who have totaled their cars from hitting these wild boars. So they're a major nuisance outside of the ag industry as well. Certainly sounds
0: that way. And of course, they also uh, are usually the reason we see a lot of disease and issues with biosecurity. But I tell you what, Ashton, I don't have any other news today and I'm done on my soapbox done talking about the wild (laughs) boar population. So shall we chat markets? Let's do it. As we hop into chat markets today, we saw a little bit of mixed trade on the screen Mostly lower in corn and mixed in soybeans. March corn today down four and a half cents, closing at 585 and three quarters. The May down five, ending the day at 587 and a quarter. Mixed today in soybeans as the January contract added three cents, closing at 1262 and a half. Certainly a little premium here in these front month contracts. But as you look out to the November 22 contract, that shed two and a quarter cent today to close at 1240 and three quarters. Wheat Lost big moves today across the entire complex, but Chicago March wheat down 31 cents, closing at 756. The March down 30 and a half cents, closing at 762. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets today, we saw that weakness continue. February live cattle down $1.72.5, and a half, closing at 136.57 and a half. The April down $1.07, ending the day at $1.40.92. Feeder cattle lower today with the January contract shedding $1.15, closing at $163.42.5. The March cut $1.92.5, ending the day at 164 475 and, and in lean hogs, that weakness continued with the February contract shedding at three quarters to close at $79.32.5. The April down 90. Ending the day at 8420. And lastly, wrapping things up here, Ashton, with the class three Dairy Milk Futures. January down 16 cents today, closing at 1982. The February added seven cents, closing at 20 bucks on the nose. Ashton, without further ado, fill us in on who we're talking to for today's interview.
2: Well, Delaney, we are sharing the final session, at least part one of the final session that we got from NAFB talking about processing and packing.
3: Scott, if you wouldn't mind just like a general overview of, of where we are in the marketplace and maybe what has led to, to some of this, uh, the talk about expanding possibilities.
4: Yeah, for sure. So good afternoon everyone. Uh, so I'll say, you know, just stay tuned. The cattle industry always changes over time. The things that we've been through the past two or three years might look a lot different in front of us. Uh, sometimes I remind us that you know, these plans that we're talking about today are, are real positive, but, uh, the AFG announcement yesterday, that I, I think at best is probably third quarter of 2024 before that plan is operational. Uh, so that's not going to fix our, uh, some of our issues that maybe we talk about in terms of not enough capacity here in the very near term. Um, I, I'd like to start by reminding us all that, uh, it's been dry in many parts of cattle country and, and, uh, I think that the changes as we get further into 2022, as a result of just fewer cattle, uh, are, are going to mean a, a very different situation. Uh, packers generally have have had the upper hand uh, with ample cattle numbers. They don't have to bid very hard. Margins are very wide. Uh, that could change pretty rapidly when you uh, just look at placement data that we've seen so far year to date, or at least January through September about 17 million ahead of of, uh, cattle that we've placed in feed yards. You look at that relative to our beginning uh, feeder cattle supply outside of feed yards, we've been pulling cattle ahead, uh, and we've done that for a couple, three years. We can't keep doing that. So I keep thinking numbers will tighten as we get further into 22 and into 2023, and and so I I think that changes in the pricing opportunities as we look ahead.
5: Megan Grebner, Brownfield Ag News. Um, so it's going to be a long question, so bear with me. We talk about increasing and incentivizing more packers, more competition. What happens when that competition maybe gets too thin? Does it just kick the can down? Do we run into this risk of kicking the can down the road and ending back right where we are, but with a lot more, whether it's producers who are engaged in a cooperative meat processing plant or other small businesses? Um, then eventually selling out to the larger packers, and we've lost this competition. How do we? How does the industry manage that risk and make sure that we're doing what's right for the producers, but also not just perpetuating this cycle of lack of competition?
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I personally think. <sighs> If you're adding capacity, just um, even if there's a, uh, let's say the big four all of a sudden, you know doesn't go well and they, they buy it out, you still actually have, have that extra capacity. So I, I talked about earlier how we're we're maxed out on our capacity slaughter now from Monday through Friday. If you have extra plants, you then can slaughter more cattle Monday through Friday, and that may help you on your labor pool where you don't have to work on your on your Saturdays. Um, So the increase in capacity is very much needed. I I think by adding the plants, that adds competition um, and, therefore, helps producers. And it will shrink that margin or the the producers will get a larger share of the retail dollar compared to what is happening now. So this industry is definitely um, in need, of, in my opinion, of some increased competition for sure. Um, uh, and in several organizations, um, my own organization has, has spoken about it at length, um, as well as, you know, smart, other smart people. So, um, but yeah, it, you know, it, it is going to be just like every marketplace, no matter what, what widget they're selling, there's going to be competition. There's going to be some niches that people, the industry needs to figure out. Um, and, and the industry will do that. um, um it just, it, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes
4: forward. So I just think we have to recognize the cattle industry has long lags on the production side, and what's been too many cattle here for a, a period of time may quickly turn around to be not enough cattle, even with current capacity if we aren't careful. So we'll see how many cows we've lost out of the west, out of the northern plains as a result of the dry weather, uh, and, and how long those stay out. But it's, it's interesting that we're going to be building capacity in the face of drought in a, a significant portion of cattle country. Not as, not as big as the 2012 drought by any stretch. So all of a sudden we go from not enough capacity to too much capacity. And, and for me, that then becomes a larger industry issue. So producers may like that situation. They, they may see much tighter packer margins and we'll have fewer complaints about not getting enough share of, of the consumer dollar, but then that could lead us further down the road of being back on the other side. I mean, this cattle cycle is a lot different today than we might talk about a historical cattle cycle, but it's not gone. Um, does, does weather continue to drive? I mean, if you think about 2014 when we saw record prices for feeder cattle in particular, those came as much from being short of supplies from the 2012 drought as anything else. So does 2012, 2021, are, th- are those more typical weather patterns th- than we've seen? Um, t- to me, again, this discussion of how do you best coordinate uh, cattle numbers with packer capacity is going to be more of an issue, especially if you want to compete with the other meat products as well. Um, I I think we've seen some expansion in smaller processing capacity that could get tough uh, going forward. Uh, You know, what are ample supplies of cattle might look a lot different. So for me, those uh, smaller facilities, uh, I think Lisa and Niche, I'll go Niche Market, they got to have a premium for that product if they're going to stay in business longer term. So the idea of marketing is going to become very important to some of these small processors that we've seen come on. Um, and if they're not good marketers, that may be the, the problem that they face in terms of staying in business long term.
6: Spencer. Spencer. Yeah. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Spencer Tase with AgriPulse Communications. Communications. Um, w- wondering, uh, let's let's say we're we're full speed ahead on expanding this processing capacity that we have right now in the beef sector. Uh, USDA looking at spending a pot of money that uh, that they're trying to determine uh, how to best uh, approach that. We haven't talked too much uh, so far here today about the size of of the plants that we might be looking to build or uh, I- expand wondering the the fact that uh, when the coronavirus hit some of these five six thousand head behemoths as, uh, as another livestock economist called them to me the fact that when those went down we lost a, a decent percentage of our production capacity does that make even even though there's some efficiencies plants like that can offer does that make you more nervous about building plants like that in the context of a potential another pandemic in 5 10 15 30 years? given the fact that we we could take a lot of that capacity offline and should the industry maybe instead look at 1000 1500 2000 head plants that might not be as efficient but would offer a little bit better risk management for the sector
1: uh, the the plants that I, I i personally don't think you're going to see the 5 6000 head big big uh uh plants built anymore i think they're going to be more than more the i would call moderate size or Whatever word you want to use, but the thousand to fifteen hundred, uh, those plans that I talked about that they're being discussed as opportunities or potential opportunities being built are that fifteen hundred roughly ahead of day. Um, that's a, that's an op, that size is, 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 is large enough to be efficient. Uh, you can sell a lot of box. Uh, you know, a lot of these, all this meat is sold by semi loads, and you can you can be very efficient at what that kind of size. Uh, when you start getting your inefficiencies, is when you start talking your 50 head, your 100 head, your 200 head um, day kill plants. So those 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 will struggle more, um, even more so than somebody that's going to do five head a day. So, um, I yeah, but I don't I don't think we're going to see large, massive five, six thousand head kill plants anymore.
4: So I think it's hard to answer that risk management question, Spencer. You know, so I think it was conventional logic that if we would have had plants spread out more, that we would have had less issues with COVID-19 and maybe kept more of those plants operating. Uh, I'm I'm not sure we actually know that with certainty, that 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 would have been the way it would have played out. Um, So, and I'll say, when's the next pandemic going to happen? Uh, I think we've learned a lot out of COVID 19 already about how to run those plants better than we ever uh, were back in 2020. Uh, I, I keep saying I think we learned an immense amount about risk management that gives us less uh, potential concerns about processing capacity shutdown than we saw in 2020. and, and I'll say that more broadly for the economy. We've learned a heck of a lot that uh, won't shut down the restaurant industry for example right we we learned about takeout and carry out like no tomorrow and and those folks learned how to pivot um and, and so i think there's different risk today than there was when we were in the midst of this in 2020 um i i agree that you know there may we may not see the big 5 and 6000 head plants coming in something smaller than that I'm not certain that's driven as much by trying to do risk mitigation relative to the next pandemic as some other economic factors that that make those perhaps better choices Uh, size-wise. Trying to find enough labor for five or 6,000 is a little different than trying to find enough labor for someone that's going to run 1,500 in a day.
7: When COVID hit and then JBS got hit with the cybersecurity, everybody freaked out and they called it a monopoly between JBS and national beef and everything. So now beef producers are wanting to try to get rid of that. And in the state of Missouri, we tried to see that work with um, Valley Oaks meat, and it didn't go very well. They shut it down because it was too close to Kansas City. So do you think that's something that we would ever get away from the major processing plants? And if we do, would we need do you think we would there be a need for um stockyards or or and then how is the USDA going to do the inspection for all those plants that are replacing the major meat packing plants
4: yes I'll take uh I'll, I'll take a stab here to start with so so Valley Oaks is is a, a good example right so it's one that was both feeding cattle and processing cattle. Um, it has its own unique history in terms of, of its success or lack of success, uh, some of which had nothing to do with processing. Uh, I, I would say feeding cattle in a populated area created some issues for them um, and, 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 and certainly had a number of folks who were very opposed uh, to, to uh, that operation. Um, I, I, so the, the question you ask about monopoly, you know, not monopoly. Um, I will say the more people we have, more processors we have bidding on cattle, the better price discovery we have. Let's, let's not kid ourselves about that. Um, so let's make sure though that we appropriately talk about price discovery. So for me as the economist, I go, Do we get the intersection of supply and demand and that's the price that we see for cattle? If so, that's adequate price discovery. I don't need thousands of packers buying cattle to ensure price discovery, but when does it become too thin, all right? And and that's a very difficult question to answer. I, I sometimes remind us that in the worst of the pandemic, better price discovery could have led to lower prices, not necessarily higher cattle prices. I know that might not be popular uh, with some folks, but but I want to distinguish, did we want higher prices because we thought there was a monopoly, or was it that price discovery wasn't happening correctly? And those are very different uh, issues for us to face. And again, I'll say more competition, better price discovery, hands down. I I wish all of our ag markets always had better, uh, more competition so we knew that we were accurately determining the market clearing price. I can give you industries that are thinner than cattle, uh, that appear to be finding re- reasonable prices, uh, but, but it's a very tough question. So when do we become too thin, I think is a good question that uh, needs to be addressed. But uh, um, to some of the smaller operations, I'll go back to Valley Oaks here for a minute, uh, it it's not – so again, it was going to be tough because you're talking about not a, a several hundred head being slaughtered a day uh, in in that plant. So it's it's tough in that size, in my mind, to make a go of it. And yes, they had a lot of other uh, folks that were certainly working against them. them. Really yeah, yeah. So it's so it's, felt it, so it's a, it was an opportunity for uh, Missouri to to da- kind of get their toe in the feeding and. Processing business, and there was some good success story of, of high quality steaks going into this into Kansas City as a result of that. Yet they, they had a lot of uh, folks that certainly worked against them, and uh, you know ultimately now we're talking about killing cows at that plant uh, for the most part.
3: You know we're just a few miles, half hour from Tonganoxie, Kansas, um, just outside of Kansas City on 24. In 2017, they announced that the Tyson was going to build a turkey facility there to, at the time, much fanfare. And then shortly after that, to much freak out for a number of reasons. One, you know, people were wondering about what's, t- what, what is that going to do to the value of my home? For example, do we need a, do we need a plant here? Also, it was, my goodness, the high school is already bulging at the seam. Do we want to bring that in? And part of it, whether it was said or not, could have been, well, who's going to work there and do we want them to come here? Does that, are any of those concerns with processing possibilities in the, in the cattle business? Tonganoxie is a lot more suburban than I think the places you're talking about, but do any of those concerns exist?
1: Well, that I, the reality is, is that, uh, you know, every, Agriculture wants these facilities. Um, a lot of them just don't want them in their backyard. And so, um, I know Costco up in Fremont, Nebraska, they fought that. Uh, nobody, you know, they, they had a lot of issues. Um, and that's a big, that's a big issue for all these, uh, companies that are starting from scratch is they need to find a place, uh, that will accept them. Um, you know, a lot of the work is foreign. Um, comes with different economic problems. Um, or economic realities, I maybe should say, um, would be a better choice of words, but, but, uh, it, it doesn't matter if it's pork, chicken, beef, um, they've all, uh, faced that, uh, and they, you know, they have to find a, a place where somebody would accept it.
3: Well, you know, water, I would think would be a, depending on where, like if, it's, <laughs> if it's anywhere near the Ogallala, you know, mm-hmm. just how in the world. You handle those kind of logistics and operations.
1: Yeah, water, wastewater, um, they're all, you know, part of it. Um, again, that's, and that's, there's a, there's a major barrier to entry, uh, with, with the building facility. And that, that's been the challenge for the industry, um, and why you, you, as you're already substantially you know, the amount of money that you need is substantial. Uh, then you start talking about the regulations and you have to have inspectors inspired, then you have to have labor force. Uh, you have to have the, uh, community that, you know, wants you to be there. That, that's, that has been the problem and a uh, major problem with the industry is that, um, it's just a huge barrier to entry. And that's why you have not seen these facilities just pop up, um, so easily and readable. Go ahead,
6: Lee Scott, Andy Schwab, Northern Ag Network, Billings, Montana. I Appreciate you guys coming out today. Um, certainly, yeah. this week we're hearing more push for um, concerns over BSE coming out of Brazil, and maybe more so to my uh, point of the question, country of origin labeling. Um, are we going to see this as a hindrance or a help to the uh, producers, and maybe extending it into the producers' bottom line? <laughs>
3: see <laughs> so, so UCA t- talk about country origin labeling? I don't I
4: don't know. So two questions wrapped up there, I'll say. So number one, so uh, Brazil and BSE, you know, so for sure we're gonna want to pay attention to uh, some of the issues of fresh beef coming in from Brazil into this country. The last thing we want is uh issues here and it certainly looks like there's been some lax reporting or or slowdown in reporting. To, to me, those you know that issue is going to work itself out over time. Co- country of origin labeling. Uh, you you can find a mixed bag of folks that will give you answers about the pros and cons of cool. Um, I, so as the Economist, I'll remind us that you know WTO has ruled against us on country of origin labeling. So we have in in my mind two choices. We can abide by that and not go down the country of origin labeling road, or we can ignore it and pay restitution where we need to along the way um, and talk about country of origin labeling. For me, the 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 answer to this question is tough in that do consumers perceive USA beef only as a premium product they're willing to pay a some type of premium for? And if the answer to that is yes, this, then it's an easy path. Um, I, I don't think we all know the answer to that question because we've never, you know, really done enough research. I looked long and hard uh, for research that I thought adequately looked at what are consumers willing to pay for a, a USA origin only beef. And it's hard to find good studies out there that, to me, are definitive. I, I see a lot of work that's been done, but nothing conclusive in my mind. So um, I, I expect uh, cool could certainly be a discussion in the 2023, 2024 Farm Bill 2025, whenever we decide we're going to write the next one uh, for, for from a, a cattle perspective.
2: Again, Delaney and I were both very grateful to be able to go to NAFB 21 in person this year. Of course, that was my first in-person NAFB, so got to see some familiar faces from the podcast. I say from the podcast, from the network. Got to meet a couple of folks there. And folks, if you want to tune into any of the other shows that we have on the network, you can do so at globalagnetwork.com. Just be sure to tune into Ag News Daily every day of the week, Monday through Friday at Ag Daily. dot com. Without Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.